0: Welcome to Missing Persons Uncovered, I'm Karen Shalev-Green and I carry out research into missing persons at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. In this podcast we seek to understand the complexities of a global issue. Every year hundreds of thousands of people go missing worldwide. I'm Caroline Humer, a child protection
1: expert and across this series Karen and I are talking to professionals to share insights into how we can all be more aware and take action to protect vulnerable people in our communities and
0: families from going missing. Today we're talking about exploitation and particularly sexual exploitation and the relationship between that and missing persons. They are sometimes interlinked, but they're also separate issues. So we'll touch on that. And today my guest is Caroline, which is lovely for us to talk again. How about you start by telling us a little bit about your expertise in this realm. We know your expertise in relation to missing persons, but how does that link with sexual exploitation?
1: It's great that we are back on a episode at least once per season. My background has really interlinked or has combined missing with exploitation from the start. 20 years ago, I started at the National Center for Missing and Exploded Children on the cyber tip line, which essentially meant reviewing public reports on online exploitation to review if it is exploitation and then determine where the offense took place. If it took place anywhere in the world and it could identify it, we would then work with law enforcement in identifying the perpetrator and potentially the victim as well. With that in mind, I sort of saw that there was a link with missing, that a lot of the children that were being exploited online through child sexual abuse material or human trafficking were not always reported as missing, but some have a tendency to go missing and then identified as human trafficking or victims of child sexual exploitation. And I thought, there is a need to look at how to prevent all of this. How can we prevent online child sexual exploitation? And we need to look at the start. And for me, the start is if a child or a person goes missing. So that's when I really started combining the two and looking to build a framework and responses on missing children issues so that the law enforcement and the government and NGOs could respond appropriately to that and
0: link it to exploitation when and if needed. You mentioned, obviously, the focus today is child sex exploitation, but there are many forms of exploitation. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of where does it all fit in? What are other forms of exploitation and how common are they?
1: I think we keep saying that exploitation in all forms, sexual, labor, human trafficking, are all happening in today's world. Some will call it as part of the bigger view of slavery that still exists. So we could look at bondage, that's exploitation. You could look at labor exploitation, forced exploitation from more around the financial aspect, but it's also organ exploitation as well. My focus has mainly been on sexual exploitation of children, which can happen to any child at any point of time, depending on the vulnerability of the child. And in my mind, every child is vulnerable due to the fact that they haven't experienced life the way we see it as an adult. And don't necessarily understand some of the consequences that happens with some of their actions. But we as adults have that responsibility of explaining what those harmful things can be. So sexual exploitation can happen to anyone. In you know, there are various data sets out there that say there are 20 million children that are sexually exploited. Versus to others that say that there's over 100 million people being sexually exploited across the world. What we're talking about in this episode is really sexual exploitation of a person. And with that, the definition from the World Health Organization is the actual or attempted abuse of positional vulnerability, power or trust for sexual purposes, including but not limited to profiting monetarily, socially, or politically from the sexual exploitation of another. So essentially, the person who's exploiting the other person has to have power and take power from the other person. As I said, children are, in essence, vulnerable because they're children, and therefore, a person in power can take advantage of children very easily and coerce them or groom them into doing something that could harm them or is inappropriate for that particular age of a child.
0: And just to clarify, sexual exploitation can also happen to adults.
1: Absolutely. So, that definition from the World Health Organization is for adults as well as for children. I think we don't really talk much about sexual exploitation of adults because. We think we as adults have our own responsibilities. There's no guardian for us. So we take care of ourselves. But sexual exploitation does happen to anyone, adult or child, because there are people out there who take
0: advantage of the vulnerability. So what are the biggest issues faced today tackling sexual exploitation?
1: Right now for 2022, 2023, what we have seen or what law enforcement and NGOs in the child protection space have seen is a huge increase in something that we call sextortion. It has various names from revenge porn to online enticement to image-based sexual violence. The other one is specifically for children is more of the financial extortion of CSAM. So there is, There isn't a common definition yet, but in essence, extortion, what we mean by it is a person that extorting another person for either financial gain or for anything else. In this instance, it's mainly for sexual images of the other person. That means it's pornography for adults or child sexual abuse material when it comes to a child. And what's happening is people are having conversations online with an individual that they probably don't know in person or in real life. And they trust that person. They share intimate images of each other. And then from one second to another, the bad actor asks for more images um, that are more provocative or say, I will distribute this intimate image of you to your school, to your office. To your parents, to your neighbors, to your community, unless you send me 500 pounds or 500 US dollars in the next 10 minutes. And that's how this extortion starts. It's grooming the individual and befriending the individual, gaining their trust, and then literally just flip that switch. I want something from you. I have all the power because I've got your intimate images and you're ashamed of those and you don't want anybody to see them. So now give me what I want. If that's other images, potential videos, or as I said, financial gain of give me 500 pounds, 500 US dollars.
0: That of course can happen face to face. So there can be an adult grooming a child that they come to know from school, from the neighborhood. And give them presents, give them money, give them alcohol and take photographs in a compromising position and threaten them again that they will do exactly that. It's also important to say that, you know, girls and women get more attention in this space often. And it's really important to acknowledge that boys and men are also subjected to this. and. Uh in a way, there's more social barriers for them to talk about it because of the shame and the taboos that they f- just all of the sudden find themselves. And that doesn't even mean that they are sexually attracted to a male. It might be a situation that they really didn't envisage themselves or finding themselves in and then all of a the sudden they are being really extorted.
1: Exactly. The FBI actually put out a warning earlier in 2023 to talk about the increase of sextortion in the last year and a half. And what they really said is that it can happen to anyone. And it's it, what happens with, with boys and men is, is that mainly it's someone that pretends to be a woman with a really beautiful profile image of them, a sexy image of a woman, and they entice the man or the boy in sharing their intimate images and sexual images, and then flip that switch and say, well, actually, you just shared it with another man, and this is inappropriate, and I will tell your neighbors, I will let the community know, or if it is a child, it is saying, you need to give me more images. And... I think, from looking at statistics by the FBI as well as the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, it has increased massively where the victims are boys and men. I don't know if that's because more accepted for them to share images and they'd be more willing to share it than women, but it is interesting to see that there is a huge increase in men and boys being sexually exploited
0: for their intimate images so it is for everybody. I think it's worth saying that again just to highlight to listeners that we tend to have the stereotype that it's a stranger asking for images either online or threatening people in person but it can also be follow-up from a romantic relationship for example in a breakup and somebody that you really trusted that can all of a sudden flip that switch on you.
1: Exactly. That's what we see with a lot of the children is that they are taking pictures themselves of their genitalia or their intimate images and sharing it with their boyfriend, girlfriend. And then they split up and then one of them feels like taking revenge and shares the intimate image with the whole school. And then the person is being bullied at school because of the image that's out there. And for adults, it's not necessarily within a school, but there are actual websites that cater to the revenge of your exes. And so you can put intimate images uh, on a website and talk bad about your ex in that way. And that's called... Revenge porn. So it may take a different form when it happens to an adult than to a child, but the consequences are still the same, that the person has the images distributed, is afraid, is scared, is vulnerable.
0: So how is that linked with missing then?
1: So how torsion or sexual exploitation and overall is linked to missing has been documented a lot of times in various ways. In research, you could look at it in two different aspects. One is more starting with sexual exploitation and then the person runs away or you have a person go missing and they experience sexual exploitation while they're missing in some of the research that has come out in the UK and the US, we use the terms pull and push factors to describe that of the pull factor being that it's actions that takes the person into something that they are looking for. If that is a boyfriend that the parents don't like, or if it's adventure that's outside of the house, that's the unknown. There's also then the flip side, the push factor of things that drive the person away from the security that they are in. And that could be that the sexual exploitation is happening where they are currently, and they want to escape that. And that's why they run or they
0: go missing. That's
1: where the two are interlinked.
0: So go back a stage. And if you can give us some example, because you talked about the, the two different scenarios of going missing possibly so let's give listeners who are not familiar with that a couple of examples it's about many many cases that we are aware of so let's start with what's that relationship between someone who's going missing for the purpose of being exploited what does that look like
1: and let me put that in regards to minors and children is that children may have restrictions at home, looking for adventure by going out of the house, by exploring what this world and what the city or the the village that they're in can offer. And they may be unhappy with the parents or they, in this context with sextortion, is that they may be bullied in school because an intimate image was distributed across their peers and their friends and now everybody's making awful comments about them on social media and texting them with awful comments they want to escape so they run away and they live on the street and they may come across somebody that then takes that vulnerability and uses it to groom them and entice them into a whole new world that could be exploitation and human trafficking they then become a victim of sexual exploitation while going missing. They experience it outside of the house, outside of their usual environment, and they've encountered it because they're living on the street and because they're outside of their environment.
0: Also, just to pinpoint even more, I think, where the dangers lurk, you can have scenarios where a child is just very shy and not very popular at school. For example, and an adult will find them even walking home on their own on social media in any way that child is vulnerable because they just want to be cared for. They want somebody to like them, to make them feel good. And that person will then groom them either by giving them presents, giving them compliments, and build that trust over time and then start exploiting them. And through that, Process, they can then start trafficking them and so on. So it can also happen whilst the child is actually living at home and the parents are absolutely unaware of the changes that are occurring with that child in that environment.
1: Absolutely. I think that's where it can happen at home. It can happen anywhere. I come back to the vulnerability. If you see a person that you see they have vulnerabilities. And you take another person that sees those vulnerabilities and gains your trust to navigate around that vulnerability and take that vulnerability, gain the trust and use that trust to essentially say, you're okay. I understand you. And I know what you're going through. No one else does, but I do. Let me be your best friend. Let me be your best person That then builds that trust. And then they use that trust that they've built with you against you and say, well, now I know everything about you. So you can't go to anybody else. And because of that, I want you now to do X, Y, and Z. It doesn't even have to be sexual, but we're talking about sexual exploitation. It can be then entering into human trafficking, but it also can be that they then say, you need to transport drugs from one city to another because you owe them or because you've gained their trust so much that they can't say no. It all comes down to that vulnerability and of being ashamed of taking those intimate images.
0: I don't want to scare listeners but I think it's really important that given that we talk about this subject is that we give you a bit of an overview as to how common that relationship between sexual exploitation and missing really is. Can you give us a a, a bit of statistics as to numbers?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is an important question. One, from a professional standpoint of view, I think we need to connect missing and sexual exploitation more often because of the interlink. I do think that a lot of times we look at them separately and wait until there is a crime committed, which is usually the sexual exploitation part. When we talk about missing, and we've mentioned this in in other episodes previously, is it's not really considered a crime, but in some countries like the U.K., Children are not allowed to go missing, but it's not a actual crime. And that goes for other countries too, whereas child sexual exploitation or sexual exploitation of any kind is usually considered a crime in some shape or form in most countries. To give you some ideas, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, looking at children alone. They receive 25,000 reports of missing children cases roughly every year. One in six of 25,000 cases of missing children are linked to child sexual exploitation. That's where the sort of the statistics is. I think it's hard to get the accurate statistics on, on all of this because it depends on how a country categorizes sexual exploitation, or missing?
0: There's a very strong link in research between the two. It's recognized even in government policy. It's an element of suggesting exploitation is occurring when somebody is going missing, and generally repeatedly. It's not the one case. You see it particularly with children, where somebody starts to go missing repeatedly because they are being enticed or pulled or threatened to leave the home right into the control of the person exploiting them. It's also difficult because if you don't ask questions, then you don't find the answers. And if you don't discuss what people experience when they go missing, and in the UK we call that return interview, which doesn't occur in most countries to my knowledge, then you don't know what they've gone through. And also if these interviews are carried out by police officers, children are far less likely to divulge the information, whereas in the UK there's far more awareness that charities specialising in youth carry out those interviews and it's far less threatening. So there's a bit more information then to build upon.
1: And I think that's a great policy that the UK has put together in regards to people who go missing multiple times to then have those return interviews. And my understanding is, is also those return interviews are for not just for children, but also done on adults. One thing that I do want to stress is the difficulty to show the link is that the victim's of sexual exploitation don't necessarily explain that they went missing. They focus on the sexual exploitation part. And I think we need to really look at the full instance of their experience from beginning to end. So did they go missing before or after they were exploited? Pull and push factor. Then what happened when they went missing? And then Provide that support after they come back to make sure they don't go missing again, but also that sexual exploitation doesn't happen again either. We need to look at the whole incident that they've had. And we need to be more open about the conversations. As I said, I think one of the reasons why sextortion has increased so dramatic, dramatically over the last few years is because the bad actors find the vulnerabilities of people who are then ashamed of what they've done and think it's their fault, which it isn't. It's the bad actor's fault. We need to ensure that people feel comfortable enough to speak out, to talk about it and say, this is what happened so that we can prevent it more. And we can talk about the prevention side but also understand
0: this issue more and not be ashamed. You touched on prevention so what can we as professional as members of the public what can we as a collective do to prevent sexual exploitation? We could
1: talk about prevention for another whole episode in itself but I think on a professional side is is what I mentioned previously is we need to make the connection even clearer than it already is between missing and sexual exploitation. When when law enforcement or charity come across a case of a missing person or a person that has been exploited, to then look back at what triggered the incident to be able to understand the whole aspect of the incident and the experience that that victim had. That means that the organizations and the unit in the, and the departments within the police forces that work on missing need to work very closely with the departments on child sexual exploitation if they're not already working in the same unit. What I've seen with law enforcement is a lot of times that they're on different departments and that they work separately and not actually together. So it's for me, it's really important that from a professional side, get the two to work more closely together and share experience, data, expertise, knowledge, so we can help the public on understanding the issue. From a public side, we all need to be aware, regardless of age, that there are bad actors out there that want to take advantage of your own vulnerabilities. We all have them. But if somebody finds them and takes advantage of them, we need to be aware of it. And we need to be a little mistrusting of people online, especially ones that we don't know in person. We need to not immediately trust them just because they sound nice or they look nice, but really get to know them and understand who they are and meet them in person. And then we can look at having those conversations around intimate images. We all make mistakes. I think it's a case of your own judgment, especially when we're adults for children. We need to teach the children empowerment, how to protect themselves while they're online, but also give them the tools of, hey, don't talk to just anybody. Make sure who you're talking to is a real person, is the person that they're saying they are. And if you feel uncomfortable, And that goes for adults as well as for children. If you're uncomfortable with a conversation or where the conversation is going, don't hesitate to point that out or leave the conversation or block the person. Because you feel uncomfortable. We need to say it so that people are aware of what makes us uncomfortable and what's right or wrong.
0: And for parents and carers, what are the telltale signs that they can be mindful of to identify that their child possibly is being exploited?
1: It's change in behavior. You mentioned earlier on if a child is very quiet and doesn't have many friends and then suddenly something changes. That could be that they're even more reclusive or that they get a new cell phone from somewhere or they're spending too much time online chatting with somebody and hiding the screen from parents. It's important for parents and caregivers to openly talk to children about the safety online to say, yes, you can talk to people online, but be mindful of what you provide to them. Don't provide them with personal information that can identify where you live or which school you go to, because that then can be used as a vulnerability to get too close to you to build trust. So I think it's important that we talk openly about with children about the, the dangers online, but also then provide them with the tools. The biggest factor that I see is always the change in behavior. You know your own child or you you as a caregiver know the individual you're taking care of. If something changes, In that person's behavior, then ask why. Look at the reasoning why that's happening. And it could be benign, it could be something that has nothing to do with exploitation, but there's probably a reason why that person's changing. So have that conversation with them and ask them without judgment, without criticizing what they're doing, but having that open conversation to understand what is going on with that person. A teacher could do that conversation or your own brother or sister, depending on who you trust, but have that conversation and pay attention to their behavior. If something changes from the grades slipping as, as kids to suddenly not hanging out with the best friend or to being more aggressive and not wanting to talk to you anytime you want to have a conversation. That can be a change of behavior because something's going on. It
0: can also be, you know, if they show up with bruises, a Isn't lot it? of time we see that people that exploit them. Part of the grooming process is to try to alienate them from their family because that yeah. their protection. So this all of a sudden brainwashed to not talk to parents and parents again, it's important to reassure parents that is something you experience. Seek help. Talk to someone. It's not your fault. If you're asking the question, then you're getting quite an explosive pushback. There's a reason for that. And it's not just adolescence. It might be, but it's not necessarily the case. So if you see it alongside other issues, For example, that they all of a sudden got new sneakers that they can't afford or an expensive watch or they have pockets full of cash. All of those things together can really signal something's going on. And of course, if they start disappearing and they go missing and they don't tell you where they've been and they're secretive, those are signs for you to really raise concern and start going Something big is going on here.
1: One thing that you also mentioned that's really important is no judgment. When you're having a conversation with the person, don't judge them on the actions that they've done. Even if you feel that the actions are bad and that the consequences of it are bad, don't judge the person. That's it's really important when we go back to the conversation on extortion, is that if a child or a person has sent an intimate image that has now been distributed globally, don't blame the person that's in the image because they didn't know it was going to be distributed globally. That was not their purpose. They didn't know that the consequences could be something different. So it's really important to not judge on the actions that the individual has taken.
0: It's also important for people in that spirit to bear in mind that that person might be threatened. There have been cases for children, for example, whose images have been taken. And the person exploiting them says, I know where you live. I will hurt your sister. I will hurt your parents. I will come to your house. um, And they're terrified. You know, if a 12, 13 year old hears that from an adult that holds that power, and we talked about that person being of power, then they'll comply because they're afraid. The conversation absolutely has to come from a place of love, of compassion, and, and just openness to listen and just say, I want to protect you. I'm not judging you. And also, bearing in mind that they might not reveal it the first time. They might slam the door in your face and they might call you a few names. But there are charities around different countries possibly able to then guide you as a parent if you're concerned about a child being exploited. That can help you with specific information, taking into account your culture, how to discuss that in a in a more gentle way. I think you hit it there. Just because they may slam the
1: door at you in the first time doesn't mean that they don't want you to talk and ask again. It's They're ashamed, they're scared, and it may need a little bit of a persistence on your end to be able to have that
0: conversation. It's important to also say if you don't get anywhere, they don't talk to you that it's not your fault either. That person they're exploiting them has had way more time in doing that than you have. They're they're ahead in the game. It might take a while. And so the best thing you can do is Give them the opportunity. But if they're unable to take it, it's not your fault if you've offered it.
1: It's be a, to open to conversation. Don't be ashamed. Have to talk to somebody and make sure that person is a trusted person that you can trust in that respect.
0: We'll end with that. Thank you very much, Caroline. Interesting as, as always. This is our last episode of the series and we are planning to be back for series three by early 2024 if not before that and we hope you enjoyed the series and will join us when we come back thank you
1: I appreciate all the listeners and we look forward to hearing from you if you'd like to find out more about our work and any resources we mention in the show you can go to missingpersonsuncovered.com and if you have any questions you would like us to answer or thoughts on topics you would like us to discuss please contact us also through our website If you'd like specific information or need help, please reach out to your local police department or national charity. If you are enjoying this podcast and discussion, please help support us by buying us a coffee through
0: missingpersonsuncovered.com. I'm Caroline Humer. And I'm Karen Shalev-Green. Thanks for listening.